back and forth and back and forth. They hear the thud of his ivory leg going back and forth and back and forth. Well, one morning they get on and they're cleaning the deck and they notice that the captain is actually out there and he's in the front of the boat and he's staring off into the horizon with this like haunting stare, waiting for something, longing for something. And it's as if he notices that they're staring at him and he turns around and he looks at all these people looking at him. And he goes on to tell them about the great white whale that ripped out his heart and took his leg from him and how he's on this mission to find this great white whale and kill it and bring justice for what has happened to him. And he's off and he invites them to be a part of this adventure to go to kill the, the great whale Moby Dick. If you haven't read the book, I'm going to spoil it by the end of this lesson. But don't worry, it's about that big and you, you might not want to read it anyway. It's a great book. Um, Good movie, too, for those that don't like books. Um, so he, he looks at them, he invites them into this, and then he says, now, do you share with me in this adventure? Do you share with me in this journey? And if you do, raise your glasses, and we will drink of consecration. And he pours wine into the harpoons to bless the harpoons, and he pours wine into their cups, and he asks them, will you join me in this mission to kill Moby Dick? And they all drink, and they're all chanting, death to Moby Dick, death to Moby Dick, death to Moby Dick. And often they go in their adventure. But do they understand what they've actually been asked to do? Do they understand the cost of what it will take to go hunt for this great white whale? Now, I want you to picture a bunch of young boys sitting in a classroom on a floor, possibly. I want you to picture them intently listening to their teacher, which I know, if anybody's a teacher in this room, you know that's a strange thing, but intently listening to their teacher, their rabbi, imparting wisdom on them, to them. And I want you to picture these children, these students, being exactly where they want to be. They're excited to be there. For these few, this was their dream, their destiny, to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi in hopes that one day, they could be just like him. I wonder if Jesus was ever one of those little students. After all, he was Jewish. I wonder if he ever went to a synagogue and learned just like they did. It's amazing when you start thinking about uh, Jesus as a Jewish man, and even more as a rabbi. And as our teacher, you begin to see a relationship there between uh, the, the student and the master, between the, the Messiah and his students. And people have often asked me, what would, what would make me desire to stop doing what I used to do to get into church planting, to get into ministry? And I, I'm telling you right now, this, this lesson is what made me do that. This lesson, seeing Jesus in his true nature as my rabbi, as my Messiah, as my Savior, changed everything for me. But before we, we look at Jesus and the implications of him being a rabbi, I want, to, I want us to look at the relationship uh, of, of a rabbi with their students back in this time in this rabbinical system. So Jew, Jesus grew up in this region of Israel called Galilee, and Jewish people who lived there believed that at a certain time, God began to speak directly to his people. They also believed that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he received words from God. They believed that um, Moses was given these words from God and a copy was made, and they believed that the first five books of the Bible were a copy of what God said. And they called these first five books 
the Torah. Everybody say Torah. See, you're already Hebrew scholars. Look at that. Okay, Torah means simply way, the way. It's, in, it's teachings, it's instructions, and they believed that the Torah was the way, the truth, and the life. Sound familiar? So in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. They believed that the best way to live the Torah, or to live life, was to live how the Torah told you to live. So the central world that Jesus grew up in was to learn and to live out or to obey the teachings of the Torah. Now, when a child was six years old, they would go to the school and, and uh, go onto the, the tutelage of a rabbi. And at this time, they would be stuffed with all sorts of knowledge from the Torah. Because education at this time, it wasn't a luxury. It wasn't even an option. It was a way of survival. So you remember the Torah was central to life. So if they lost this Torah, if they lost this information, then they lost everything. Most likely, these children would go to their local synagogues to learn. The first level of education was called the house of the book, or Bet Sefer. Everybody say Bet Sefer. I'm telling you, you're going to leave here and tell everybody you're like Hebrew scholars. They won't, they won't know. Just memorize these words. All right, so this lasted until they were 10 years old. And at this point, students began to memorize the Torah. And by the age of seven, they would generally know by heart Genesis through Deuteronomy. Can you imagine that? I can barely remember my name, and these little 10-year-olds can memorize Genesis by heart, roughly, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So reading through the accounts of Jesus' life, have you ever noticed how many people seem to just know the scriptures? So Jesus would say things, and he would quote things, and then he'd say, so as you've heard, and it was like they all understood. They all knew what he was talking about. And that's because from an early age, they were taking in the scriptures, and they were letting it become a part of them. Now, rabbis who taught the Torah were the most respected people in the community. Everybody wanted to be them. Everybody wanted to be around them. They were the smartest people in the community. So only the smartest students, the best of the best, got asked to go on to further training with the rabbis. Not everyone could be a rabbi. And so by the ages of 10, those who had excelled at everything in that first section would go to the second house of learning called House of Learning, or Bet Talmud. Everybody? Bet Talmud. Yeah. This lasted until they were 14. And students who did not make it to this phase went on to learn their family business, their family occupation, their family trade, which would carry on from generation to generation. But the rest of the students they would begin this next phase of training. And so by the ages of 13 to 14, they would basically have the whole Bible at their time. So what we know is the Old Testament, 39 books of the Bible memorized. Genesis to Malachi memorized. Students were taught to think and they were taught to rationalize for themselves. They were taught the art of questions and oral traditions that surrounded the text. And when a rabbi would give a student a question, the student would rarely give an answer. Have you ever noticed how often Jesus answers a question with another question? It's because rabbis had no interest if their students could just spit back information just as the information they gave them, just for the sake of information. They wanted to know that the student had wrestled with the text, had thought through the text, understood the text. And so the student, if they missed the point of the text that they were given, they were told that you today have abolished the Torah. 
But if they got the answer right, if they were able to wrestle with it and question it and give the context of it, they were said, today you have fulfilled the Torah. And so by the age of 14 to 15, only the best of the best of the best were still studying. Those that remained would now apply to a well-known rabbi and ask, can I be your disciple? And being a disciple was much more than just being a student. It was, the goal of a disciple was to be just like the rabbi. So the third level of training was called the house of study, or Bet Midrash. Everybody, Bet Midrash. Bet Midrash. The student would go on to the rabbi, and they'd say something like, um, I want to become one of your disciples. And it was said that if the student did that, that they were taking on the yoke of the rabbi. So you got in like Matthew uh, chapter 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. He's, he's inviting us to take upon his teaching. And so they were said to take on the, the yoke of the rabbi. Now the student wanted to learn what the rabbi did. And the rabbi would have to determine, could this student do the things that I do? Does this student have what it takes? Because the rabbi had no interest in, in training somebody that couldn't do that. So the, the rabbi would ask the, the student a series of questions, questions about the Torah, questions about traditions, questions about other rabbis. He would question them about all sorts of things. And if they didn't have what it took, if they didn't have the right stuff, the rabbi would say, you obviously love God, and you know the Torah, but you do not have what it takes to be one of my disciples, so go home and continue learning from the family business. But if they passed the test, the rabbi would say to his student, come follow me. A student would leave everything they knew behind to follow their teacher. They would leave behind uh, their occupation that they were maybe working in, their family, their friends, all to follow the rabbi. They would give up their whole life to be just like the rabbi. A student would follow the rabbi anywhere. They did not want to miss a single thing from their teacher. This is what it means to be a disciple. It is said that the students were to cover themselves in the dust of their rabbi's feet. The idea came from something that everybody had seen during the day. A rabbi would come into town, and right on his heels would be his disciples, and they would follow him. And by the end of the day, sticking on the heels of the rabbi, walking in front of them with dust flying in the air, they would be covered in the dust of the rabbi. I read an article a long time ago that, that said that they had seen um, a context, whether it was true or not, it just made me laugh either way, of a rabbi going into the bathroom and then the, the students following him into the bathroom because they didn't want to miss anything. Who knows when good information comes, you know? So they wanted to make sure they were there all the time being covered in the dust of the rabbi. And that was a good thing. Now look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. It'll be on the screen here. As Jesus walked alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, throwing fishing nets in the sea, because they were fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I will show you how to fish for people. Right away, they left their nets and followed him. Continuing on, he said, another set of brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, they were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, repairing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So at the age of 30, when a rabbi generally began to do his public ministry, his public training, his pu uh, taking on disciples and training them, we find Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee. And he runs into a couple fishermen, Peter and Andrew. Why are they fishermen? Because they didn't have what it took to be a disciple. They flunked out. So they're doing their family trade. And Jesus calls the not good enoughs to come follow him. 
He says that they drop their nets, everything, they follow Jesus. And this is, this is strange to us. Why would you quit your jobs for some rabbi that you barely knew? But given the context of, the, of that time, it's clear why. Can you imagine what it must have been like for them to have a rabbi say to you, come follow me? To have a rabbi say to you, you could be just like me. Of course you would drop your nets. And then Jesus goes and he finds James and John who are doing the same thing with their father, most likely apprentices of their father because they're not old enough to take on the family business yet. And so Jesus takes some young boys, some young men, who weren't good enough to make the cut in discipleship rabbi school, and he changes the course of history. It's important to note that rabbis often waited for their students to come to them. But Jesus, the rabbi, goes and finds his students. He finds the people that he wants to make his disciples, and that's an important difference. At one point, Jesus' disciples are in the boat in the middle of the lake, and along comes Jesus walking on the water. You may have heard this story before. It's one of my favorites, because you've got to think about this. These are a bunch of fishermen. I mean, these guys have been in water. They've been in storms. They're used to storms, and yet this storm is so big, they're scared to death. How, how bad does a storm have to be for a fisherman to be scared of the water? And here comes Jesus walking on the water, and we find out that Peter wants to be with him. He says, Jesus, if it's you, let me come out and let me walk to you. And so Jesus invites him, and you're like, why would you go, why would you go out the safety of the boat? But it makes sense in the context of the time, a disciple wants to be where their teacher is. And then we know the story, Peter begins to sink and he cries out, save me. And Jesus responds, you have little faith, why did you doubt? So who did Peter doubt? Well, he didn't doubt Jesus because Jesus is doing just fine. He's just sitting on the water like, no big deal. Peter doubted himself. Peter doubts that when Jesus says, you can be just like me, you can be just like me. Peter doubts that when Jesus says, you can walk on water, you can walk on water. When a rabbi calls you to be his disciple, then he believes you can actually be like him. When Jesus calls you to be his disciple, then he believes you can be just like him. At one point, Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And the entire rabbinical system of the time was based on a rabbi having faith in his disciples. So let's spend just a minute of time here because the truth behind this, I believe, is astounding. A rabbi would only pick a disciple that he thought could actually do the things that he did. So you look at the times that Jesus gets frustrated at his disciples. He does not get frustrated at them because they're incapable he gets frustrated because they are capable, but they doubt that they can do it. They don't realize how capable they are. He sees what they can be and could do. I coach basketball, and it's one of the most rewarding and frustrating things I've ever been a part of. I've been doing it for almost nine years now, and I'm now at the age where I'm doing under-15s, and it's about the age that, that all the kids are going through puberty, and they're just jerks. You know, they think they know everything. They don't want to listen to the coach anymore. And you're sitting here watching it, and one of those, those jerks is my son, who's not here this morning, so I can talk about him. Yeah. Um, no, he's a good kid. Um, but he, he has all these amazing skills. I know he can do it, but he keeps doubting he can do it. And the other night, luckily my manager yelled at him. She's like, Gavin, I know you can do these things. You obviously know you can do these things. Why aren't you going out and doing these things? And he goes out third quarter and just blows up the court. I mean, it was amazing. Something clicked. And that's what Jesus is going on with his disciples. He's like, guys, I've trained you. I've showed you. I picked you because I believe you can do these things. Now go do them, and you will change the course 
of the world. So at the end of time, Jesus leaves, and he leaves his disciples with these short words. He says, go to the ends of the earth and make more disciples. And then he leaves. He promises to send the Holy Spirit to guide them, to give them power. But Jesus leaves, himself leaves, the future of the movement in their hands. And he doesn't stick around to make sure they don't screw it up. He's gone. He just trusts that they can actually do it. That they are unfinished, but they can do it. And just like them, we have to learn to trust God in our unfinishedness. The, the crew of the Pequod has find whaling good. I mean, they're just catching whale after whale after whale. They're starting to process the blubber and turn it into oil. Lots of money is at hand. They are excited. And as they are going, uh, word comes to the captain that Moby Dick is not far away. And so he says to his crew, we're going to go. We're going to go catch this, this Moby Dick, and we're going to kill him. I need you to get rid of all the blubber, all the whales, all the things that we just spent days accumulating, all your money. I need you to toss it over sea because we can't get there with it on board. It'll weigh us down. And so these, these crew members are ready to create a mutiny uh, and take over because this is good money. But they decide, okay, we'll, we'll do what you say. And so they toss it over. They find the whale, they catch up to Moby Dick, and three boats go after Moby Dick, and they start hitting harpoon after harpoon after harpoon into Moby Dick, hitting some of the same places that other boats have tried to take him down because the harpoons are still sticking out of his back. And Moby Dick drags the boats, three of them, underwater, exploding the, the sailors everywhere, and then Moby Dick comes out of the water and crashes down on all of them and kills every single one of them. The fourth boat still behind, watching all this take place as all their crew is killed. But as Moby Dick comes up over the water, one crew member is left. It's Captain Ahab, and he's crawling up the back of Moby Dick, and he has a harpoon in hand, and he's stabbing the back of him, and stabbing his back, and stabbing his back. And Moby Dick dives down deep, deeper than any man could hold his breath. And Captain Ahab is stuck because the ropes have, have tangled around him, and he can't get free. And he, he goes underneath, and he, he drowns. But as Moby Dick comes up, and he's going along the water. The crew looks out and they say, there is our captain. And if you've seen this, read the story or if you've seen the movie, what is happening is Captain Ahab is stuck to the side of the whale with one arm as the whale is going in the water, his hand is doing this. And the crew looks out there and they say, look, our captain beckons us. And they all go after Captain Ahab to kill Moby Dick. And they die too. See, I ruined the, <laughs> I ruined, I ruined the story for you. Why would you do that? We look at that story and you're like, you bunch of morons. Why would you go after the whale just killed three boats and you think your one boat is going to make it? But they trusted their captain to his death. You see, we follow the same crazy captain in our world. And we have a, a, a God, we have a Jesus who served, served himself on a cross and does this. And he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me. And this will be my glory. God has an incredibly high view of people. God believes that people are capable of amazing things. That we are capable of amazing things. I have been told that I need to believe in Jesus. Which is true. And it's a good thing. 
But what I'm coming to realize is that Jesus believes in me. I've been told that I need to have faith in God, which is true and is a good thing. But what I'm coming to realize is that God has faith in me. Our rabbi, our Messiah, our Savior thinks we can be just like him. So are we covered in the dust of the rabbi? We're about to take communion here in just a second. And one of the things that I love about communion in our time together when we do this is it's not just a symbolic gesture of service or a symbolic thing to say, let's remember Jesus dying on the cross, which is true, but it's far more than that. It's a participation with our rabbi to do the very things that he did with his disciples. It's us acknowledging and saying that, God, the things that you sent Jesus to do on this earth were accomplished. We acknowledge that. And not only do we acknowledge that, we participate in that. And we believe that we too can make a difference in this world, that you have entrusted us with these things, that you believe in us, and we believe in you. So may we be a kind of people that are covered in the dust of our Rabbi Jesus till we no longer look like ourselves, but look and smell and act just like him. There's going to be a video playing, and as it's playing, um, communion will be passed out, and you can take communion when you're ready. Um, when you're done with your cups, you can put them in the, in the little spots there. I'm going to pray real quick, and we'll, we'll watch this video. Father, may we be a people that trust you, love you, come to know you, but may we also be your disciples that believe, Jesus, that you've worked in us, that you believe in us, that you've given us and commissioned us to be your disciples in this world, and may we shine the glory of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. As we take this communion, God, let it be a reminder to us let it be um, a part of us that we are your people and you are our God. Praise these in Jesus' name. Amen.